Uh, it's good to be with you in this capacity. Um, I was just thinking the last time I spoke to the assembled company, and that was uh, in church harvest, do you remember? When we were giving away £20 notes. Um, <laughs> I'm not doing that today. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it's good to be with you in this capacity. Let's just uh, open the scriptures. Uh, Denise has prayed pretty much what I was going to pray at the beginning, so we, we've done that. So um, if we could have the words to our reading uh, this morning, which I'll, I'll, I'll read to you. So it's 2 Corinthians, if you've got Bibles, chapter 11, uh, commencing at verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And in many ways, I really didn't want to preach on this passage because it's uh, quite challenging for us, uh, certainly as we apply some of these things to our own situation. So we're back in 2 Corinthians on the home straight, you'll be pleased to know. We've been years going through this, <laughs> these two books. Um, we're coming to that final straight and uh, hopefully finish this uh, before Easter. Um, but today's theme is the simple gospel. 
which we may want to change our mind about as we look at this passage more closely. So let's get some context, helpful to understand what's going on in these uh, faraway places. By way of context setting, then, there is a marked change in tone when moving from chapters 1 to 9 to chapters 10 to 13. In the earlier chapters, the tone is basically of relief and comfort, of confidence in God, and in the Corinthians, despite the fact that Paul felt the need to explain his travel plans and stress the integrity of his ministry. The tone in chapter 10 onwards, including that passage we just read, is marked by satire and irony, including a spirited personal defense and a reproach directed towards the Corinthians, along with a bitter attack leveled at opponents who had infiltrated the Corinthian congregation. And it appears that Paul's opponents, these false apostles or super apostles, had begun to directly influence the Corinthian congregation and poison its members' minds against him. And Paul, finding his authority usurped and his apostleship called into question, he was forced, against his better judgment, to provide a strong personal defense and to mount a vigorous attack against his opponents. And the crisis Paul faced in this situation was the most crucial in all his relationships with the Corinthians. So let's look at this passage. Firstly, in verse 5, we can get an insight to some of the problems with these super apostles. Firstly, Paul compares his speech to that of the super apostles. And it's clear from the Greek culture that eloquence and oratory skills were of great importance. And this actually dictated whether the message or the subject was received at all. It was a given that for anything to have influence, its presentation and its credibility gave it that authentication to the listeners. However, some scholars believe that Paul was a short man and that his voice was also proportionately small. Others think that he had an impediment in his speech, perhaps a a stammering tongue. But Paul accepts that his eloquence was lacking. But instead, in verse 6, we read, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Indeed, it is the knowledge that is more important and not eloquence. The depth and knowledge of Paul's upbringing, his training and experience, including his sufferings, are clearly stated by him later in the chapter. We'll probably get to that next week. Secondly, Paul raises the issue of payment for his visits and his preaching. Again, the Greek culture was geared around the passing of the hat in response to the oratory and message being spoken to them, and the amount collected, of course, would be a measure of favor and acceptance. And it was considered beneath the dignity of an apostle to do menial work, and the Corinthians were affronted because Paul refused to accept financial assistance from them. Paul's opponents wanted to consolidate their position in Corinth 
by carrying out their mission, but with the one difference, a financial return. So Paul in verse 7, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? He explains how he has funded himself from the other churches and and he was known for his tent making to fund his ministry. He clearly didn't want to be any sort of burden to them. So verses 8 and 9, I've robbed, and of course that's not the the right word in translation, I've robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Other churches and Paul himself have provided the funding for the ministry to the Corinthian church. There's no cost to them, but it's a bit like us today. We're very suspicious of things that are costing nothing. Paul's ministry and credibility were being completely undermined by the super apostles and by some of the Corinthian church leadership who had got drawn into their net. The super apostles' insinuations, and I suspect many other false doctrinal issues, were causing Paul to be concerned. But here he only appears to counter the direct derision and discrediting of his ministry. Despite all the failings of the Corinthians and these super apostles, we nevertheless see a great love that Paul has for the Corinthian church. After all, he birthed it and founded it. But did you spot in verse 11 this deep passion? As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And the depth of that love for the Corinthians is illustrated right at the beginning of the chapter, where in verse 2 we see this. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul's love for the Corinthians And his concern for their spiritual condition is demonstrated by the deep, godly jealousy he has. Indeed, what Paul is using here is an illustration for their spiritual condition. Sorry, I missed the line there. (laughs) Indeed, what Paul is using here is the illustration of a best man, which is far from what we understand a best man to do now in our culture. In those days, it was the best man that would seek to arrange the marriage. Firstly, by approaching the prospective bride's father and seeking his permission. Wow, that's a good one for the bridegroom, isn't it? And the best man would announce the betrothal of the couple. And here's the interesting thing. 
It was then the best man's responsibility and his duty of care to ensure that the bride was kept protected and pure, looking after the interests of the bridegroom, keeping away other suitors, and ensuring the bride was prepared and ready for the actual wedding. That's a long way from stag and hen parties, isn't it? In this illustration, we see Paul as best man with his longing for the Corinthians as the bride of Christ to be undefiled and pure, free from sin, not tainted by these super apostles and their ideas and their beliefs. Christ's claim on his church is exclusive. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians about it. It's obvious that the presenting issues of these super apostles were very serious and Paul very clearly does not mince his words about them. And if we continue that wedding image, we can identify the Corinthians split. Their loyalty towards Paul and their loyalty to the super apostles. Which is very simply, and in reality, spiritual adultery. We probably don't need to look very far to recognize the enormous fallout that was going on in the Corinthian church. If we were to look ourselves at the pain and suffering, along with the collateral damage with his causing relationships, family, friends, and society, when adultery occurs in people's lives, the damage is sometimes irreparable, and often deep scars and wounds continue to the end of people's lives. But it's a similar damage that Paul is trying to avoid in the Corinthian church. But it is of greater magnitude with eternal consequences. The danger being of apostasy. The danger of overlaying other conditions. The danger of adding rituals or beliefs onto the pure gospel that Paul had faithfully preached. We've sung this morning some lovely songs which reflect that gospel message, the need for us, sinful people, to be reconciled to a holy God. Requiring the need for us to embrace the salvation that is available only through Jesus, who died on the cross. His shed blood cleanses us from that sin, and in our repentance we obtain forgiveness and reconciliation with a holy God, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I think Laurie gave the title, A Simple Gospel, but here Paul is identifying the true gospel compared with the false gospel that the Corinthians had entertained through the super apostles. So we need to turn the focus back onto ourselves. What Jesus do they believe in? Is it a different gospel? Is it another Jesus? Verse 4. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. What a challenge to the Corinthians. 
And it clearly seems that the Corinthians have fully embraced the erroneous teachings of the super-apostles. The detail which we don't know, but scholars suggest the teaching of another sort of Jesus, a Jesus who is only human, a Jesus who's only a demigod, who's come on his own and not sent by God. Or even more basically that in the super-apostles' gospel, there is no place for weakness, humiliation, suffering and death. But we do have to ask ourselves, what is the cause of the problems? And Paul has identified it most clearly in verse 3. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It is Satan. Satan's seduction of Eve was not sexual, but a beguiling of the mind by denying the truth of what God has said. And the danger the Corinthians face is aptly the same as Eve. Satan plays with the mind, and this modus operandi is unchanged. As he did then, through the work of the super-apostles, he continues to attack the Christians in the church today. And Paul even more strongly identifies this in the final verses of our reading, the depth of Satan's work, verse 13 to 15. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Paul reveals clearly what has been going on. If Satan is an angel of light, then let us not be naive. He will play with and deceive and distract any Christian from being effective ministers of the true Jesus and his gospel. Particularly, his attacks will be strongest on the leadership of churches. And we don't need to look far to see such sad examples and situations from Satan's activities locally. Even in the wider church, alarm bells must surely be ringing as it contemplates an abandonment of biblical truths as found in Holy Scripture. Indeed, going as far as redefining sin, if that were possible, and even the blessing of sin. Satan is very much at work, corrupting church leaders and prophets and masquerading as a servant of righteousness. And that is why we must not stop praying for our leaders. Paul ends there, as we must. But we need to consider how this passage applies to us today. It's clear that this, from this passage that not only is Paul's gospel the simple gospel, but it's also the true gospel. 
So some questions. What is the gospel and the Jesus we believe in? Do we add or take things on? Do we create a Jesus plus? Have we lost the realization of God's jealous love for us? And for the church to be Jesus' pure bride. How is our relationship with God? Are there areas where we are committing spiritual adultery? Or have done? And giving undue priorities to other things? Have we allowed other things to overlay and distort the gospel and of Jesus in our lives or in our church? And the spiritual guard that we are encouraged to use of testing the truth of the scriptures against what is said and done, have we lapsed and let our guard down, giving the enemy opportunities to attack? It's well known that when the preacher preaches, he's preaching to himself as well as to others. And I think we can all learn from Corinthians in this passage today. And hopefully the Lord will use what we've focused on this morning to encourage us and nurture us on in our, our walk with the Lord. So there's many things now that we can reflect on and deal with in the coming days. Let's just allow the Spirit to point some of these things out in this moment of quiet. Help us to hear the Lord speaking. So those questions again. What is the gospel and the Jesus we believe in, do we add or take away things and create a Jesus plus? Have we lost the realization of God's jealous love for us and for the church to be Jesus' pure bride? How is our relationship with God? Are there areas where we are committing spiritual adultery? Or have done? And giving undue priorities to other things? Have we allowed other things to overlay and distort the gospel of, and of Jesus in our lives or in our church? And the spiritual guard that we are encouraged to use of testing the truth of the scriptures against what is said and done. Have we lapsed and let our guard down, giving the enemy opportunities to attack?